the crazy uncle or the crazy aunt. Now, if you're thinking right now you have no idea who that is in your family, it probably is you or might be you. But this person's antics elicit uncomfortable glances between family and bewildered silence anytime a visiting outsider comes around. And we're often embarrassed by that family member and might even try to gather together as a family without even letting them know that we are gathering. And many churches today treat the Old Testament almost like the crazy uncle or the the crazy aunt, um, present but yet frequently a source of discomfort, confusion, or maybe even embarrassment. At some level, we have to understand that this is understandable. After all, the Old Testament goes on and on and on about circumcision. It relates breathtaking episodes of God's judgment. It tells of its heroes, um, those who have had relationships with prostitutes and commit adultery, murder innocent victims, even a prophet who walked naked uh, through town prophesying. I mean, that's some crazy things Happening, And while we know that Jesus is supposed to be the main character in Scripture, we often are unsure of how stories like this, how characters like that relate to each other, but especially how they relate to Jesus. And the answer, of course, is that ultimately the Old Testament is 39 books that represent the raw power of God confronting the hopelessness of humanity with the promise of a Savior, merging into not just 39 books, but 66 books, one story. Unfortunately, we we often think of Jesus as only being physically present in the New Testament, but did you know that he is actually, Jesus is actually active in the Old Testament, even from the beginning, even from Genesis 1, where we learn, according to John 1, Jesus was there creating And it's so important for us to study how Jesus makes his presence known in every part of the Bible because this will help us all experience his presence in our day-to-day lives, even right now. Jesus is never absent in the pages of Scripture. And hear this this morning. He's certainly not absent in the pages or the stories of your life either. From cover to cover, from chapter to chapter, he is there. Last month, I used a a quote I want to use again today by Sally Lloyd-Jones from the Jesus Storybook Bible, where she wrote these words, There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Because the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. And at the center of that story is Jesus. And every story, single story in the Bible whispers his name. And I would say this not just whispers his name, but shouts his name. We must never forget that Jesus is the central figure throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament. Let me do a few things here, just kind of laying the foundation this morning. First, drawing Jesus out of the Old Testament corrects kind of the false impression from which many Christians suffer, that the Old Testament is all law and judgment, and the New Testament, of course, is all gospel and grace. 
There's a false idea that from Genesis to Malachi, that's the Old Testament, all you will find is a stern, wrathful God who expects perfect behavior, offers nothing but rules and and punishment for those who step out of line in his rules. And then the thought is from Matthew to Revelation, that's the New Testament, there's nothing but sweet, gentle, kind Jesus who overlooks all sin and brings love and miracles and promise and flowers and rainbows wherever he goes, of course, and everlasting life. And when we think about that, that has to be too simple to be true. In reality, the the entire Bible is a mixture of law and gospel, of judgment and grace, because it's a entire declaration and revelation of our Savior. Secondly, although the Bible is one big story of Jesus, we have to be careful, very careful, to resist the temptation to find Jesus in every single detail in the Old Testament, which would mean be careful about reading the Bible as if it's allegory, where we basically set aside the main meaning in order to try to find some mysterious meaning under it all. And I'm not saying that there aren't parts of the Bible um, that are written allegorically. There absolutely are. But what I am saying is this. We want to always discover the intended meaning of every text. Not trying to read your own meaning or my own meaning um, into it. And it's here that we have to hear the words of, of Jesus. In John 5, 39, to the religious leaders of his day, Jesus said, you search the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Old Testament, that bear witness about me. After his resurrection, Jesus spoke kind of the same way to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke records this conversation in Luke 24, 27, where Jesus said, or where it said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Again, that's the Old Testament. He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Therefore, a correct understanding of the Old Testament is that it is about Jesus. But even more than it being about Jesus, he is within it. He is within the Old Testament. This is where I want you to see this morning that Jesus appears in the Old Testament in three ways. First, through prophecy. Second, through patterns or types. And third, presently. Like he is present within the Old Testament. Let me just kind of show you that or kind of dive into that real quick. First of all, we see prophecies. When most people think about Jesus in the Old Testament, this is the way that they think. Messianic prophecies can be considered the clearest, the safest way to see Jesus in the Old Testament because we have prophecies in the Old Testament. We have their fulfillment in the New Testament. We can read their prophecies. We can read their fulfillment. So we have the prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament. Secondly, we have patterns and types, meaning the flood and the ark, the Passover, the Red Sea, the wilderness and the promised land, exile and return, war and peace, kingdoms and kings, prophets and priests, the temple, its sacrifices, its rituals, songs of lament and songs of rejoicing, the lives of faithful sufferers and the blood of righteous martyrs. The Old Testament is extraordinarily Jesus-shaped. 
patterns and types that point to him, to his ministry, to what he would be and what he would do. And then finally, not only do we have prophecies and patterns, we have Jesus present. And more than just being promised, more than just being pattern, Jesus is literally present throughout the Old Testament, meaning he shows up in it. The one who Abraham rejoiced in was Jesus. The one who Hagar said, you are the God who sees me, was Jesus. The one who called Moses was Jesus. The redeemer who brought Israel out of Egypt was Jesus. And he is present in so many other ways that we're going to see. So over the next 10 weeks, both on Sundays and on Wednesday nights, we're going to focus on Jesus in the Old Testament as seen in these three ways. As seen through prophecies, through patterns and types, and through Jesus presently being in in his presence in the Old Testament. And this morning, we're going to start this whole thing with the first prophecy concerning him. And just a little bit more background. And anytime we start a series, it takes a little bit of background for us to get to where we need to go. So as we come to Genesis 3, all is well, it seems. Genesis 131 says, God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. God did not create anything evil. It was all good. Suddenly, though, we come to chapter 3, and there is a serpent who is clearly evil. He is possessed by Lucifer, Satan, the evil one. Now, people say, well, who is this serpent? And the reality is, if you don't understand who is underneath it all, Revelation 12, Revelation 20, both call Satan the ancient serpent, the one from the beginning. So he shows up calling God's word into question. Did God really say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? He is deceitful. He is devious. He is destructive. God had said the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. But the serpent says you will not die. You will become like God. Of course, we know the results of this encounter. Therefore, it's safe to say that in Jesus, or excuse me, in Genesis 3, everything goes bad, fatally bad, historically bad, inescapably bad. All humans who will ever walk this earth either have been affected, are being affected, or will be affected by what happened in Genesis 3. It's an explanation or the explanation of why things in this world are the way that they are, why there is so much evil in the world, so much sin, so much corruption and chaos, why there is pain, disease, death, and sorrow, why there's conflict, hatred, and war. It all comes from the third chapter of Genesis, sin entering into the world, entering into our humanity. Yet, from this chapter on is the record of God's grace, mercy, and loving kindness to sinners. From this chapter on, we see the truth of Romans 5:20 on full display where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace increased even more. So let's dive in this morning to this one powerful verse, this promise, this first prophecy concerning Jesus. Genesis 3:15 and just one more little background here. So after Adam and Eve sinned, They hide, God shows up, and he begins to give 
judgment concerning the sin. He begins with the serpent and the serpent being judged and cursed. Then he gives this prophecy and then he moves to judgment for own sin to women, to, to Eve, to women in general, to Adam, to, to men. But verse 15 is where we're going to be this morning. And it says this, God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Fathers, we come today to this, your word, and this first amazing prophecy of Jesus in the Old Testament. We see this beautiful picture that before there was ever a mention of sin's punishment upon man and woman, there is a promise of salvation. We thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy in saving us in our sin. You, our God, as we sang this morning, you have saved our soul. You have brought what was dead to life. And we just rejoice in you. Show us the beauty of this prophecy, this promise how it points us to our ultimate need of Jesus and what he would do for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So immediately after humanity sinned, there is an announcement of a savior before God even lays the price that both Adam and Eve are going to have to, to pay for their sin, hope, mercy, grace, salvation, and good news appear. Before God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden and before the burden of their sin is laid on their backs, God places hope in their hearts. Don't miss it. Before the burden of their sin is placed on their backs, what they would have to carry because of their sin, God places hope in their hearts. And this is the first promise given after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. It's also the first gospel declaration in the Bible. It's what theologians call proto-evangelium, meaning first gospel. These words spoken by God contain the first promise of redemption in the Bible. Everything else that's in the Bible flows from these very words. As the acorn, little small acorn, contains the mighty oak, so these words contain the entire plan of, of salvation. And although you might not see it at first glance, Christ is in this verse. He is the ultimate seed of the woman who would one day come and crush the serpent's ugly head. In the process, the Savior's hill would be bruised on the cross. In short, this verse predicts that Jesus would win the victory over Satan, but would himself be wounded in the process. So in the time that we have remaining, I want us to unpack four realities, four realities this morning related to the seed of promise, helping us see just the reality of these, or this verse, this promise, this prophecy. The first is this, there will be a continuing conflict. There will be a continuing conflict. Verse 15 again, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or seed and her offspring. Or see, what, what does that even mean? And it means far more than just people are going to hate snakes and snakes are going to want to bite people. 
Now, some people say that's all it means. It means more than that. Now, I hate snakes. I will run from snakes. If, if I am watching your child or even my child, I see a snake, I might be tempted to push them over for the sake of getting away. I'm, I'm not going to confirm or deny that that would ever happen, but I don't like snakes. But the point is, there is a spiritual component here in this prophecy. It means there's going to be an ongoing conflict between humanity, whom God loves, whom God pursues, whom God redeems, and between Satan's crowd, influenced by those demons that fell, but also encompassing all those who won't believe. So from this point on, Genesis depicts two lines of seed engaged in a holy war. And what we know is that down through history, the seed of Satan has delivered crippling strikes to the work of God and to the good of humanity in the process. For Satan, of course, is a destroyer of life. He's a destroyer of goodness. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's just the nature of Satan. It's the nature of his seed. But that frames what we call the invisible war. Let me just give you some examples of this in the Bible. The first we come across is the book of Genesis, when Satan motivates Cain to kill his righteous brother Abel, both sons of Adam and Eve. It's an attempt by Satan entering the heart of Cain, which would become his seed, to kill this seed, to kill the seed of the woman that would potentially crush the head of the serpent. So what does God do? He raises up another child named Seth. And everything from now on would flow through Seth, would flow through him. Another example, the, the world gets very populated, but also it gets super evil. Man's heart is on evil continually. Satan so corrupts humanity that God's only option is to send a flood to completely destroy the earth. Satan's attempts. Thankfully, eight survive. Noah, Miss Noah, their three sons and their three wives survive. The seed continues. Another example, Satan motivates Esau to try to kill Jacob, his brother. Now, why Jacob? Well, first of all, Jacob was a deceiver. That's what he did, but also because God had made a special promise to Jacob about the seed being carried on through him. Another example, Pharaoh decides the Hebrews are populating um, too much and pose a threat, so he commands that when Hebrews the wives have their babies. If it's a girl, let her live. If it's a boy, throw him in the Nile. Why is it Satan, again, his attempt, he's inspiring Pharaoh to try to kill this seed. There are other wild examples, like in the court of Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. Most of the Jews at that time were living in Persia. This court official by the name of Haman passed a law, came up with this law that every Jew in Persia would be killed on the same day, mass genocide. Praise be to God, his plot was found out. It was foiled by Mordecai and by Queen Esther, who for a time as that stood up and Haman was hung on the gallows. God's seed again was saved. The story continues. Jesus is Born. Herod the Great is told about the king of the Jews born in Bethlehem. Of course, he goes nuts. 
decrees that every male two years and under would be destroyed. Again, what is that all about? It's, again, Satan's attempt to kill this seed of the woman. We see this picture, ongoing conflict. And then we get to Revelation 12 and we read that Satan is still the accuser of the brethren. He is still going after those who were the seed of Christ. He's still going after us. There will be a continuing conflict. But then secondly, praise be to God, there will be a coming one. There will be a coming one. Verse 15 continues this way. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Then it says this, he, he. We need to understand that the word offspring, the word seed here can either be plural or it can be singular. It's a broad term, but now we see it being fulfilled in one person, he. God is speaking of the seed of a woman as one who will be a man. And this is the only place in the Bible where it talks about the seed of a woman. In the Bible, the word seed is used more than 100 times. And every time, it refers to the offspring of a male. But here, God speaks concerning the offspring of a woman. It's very specific. For there was only one born without a human father. There was only one born through a human conception. And he is the only human who was not produced by the seed of man, clearly pointing to the Son of God. So this is not just a prophecy of Christ coming. This is a prophecy of the virgin birth. What great evidence of divine inspiration of God's word here through this prophecy. I think about this, and then I think about Galatians 4, 4 that says when the fullness of time had come, right at the right time, the time that God had planned, God sent forth his son born of a woman. What an amazing picture. Who but God could have given such an accurate, unalterable description of history and then condensed it all into one verse and 27 words? And who but he who but our Savior could undo what was done in that garden? Only him. So there will be a continuing conflict. Secondly, there will be a coming one. But third, there will be a confrontation. There will be a confrontation. And I, I think Satan understood this prophecy. This is why Satan has been fully engaged in trying to destroy the line of the Messiah, trying to destroy the Jewish People, all the efforts throughout time of Jewish genocide. And did you know that there is a parallel verse in the book of Revelation to this verse in Genesis 3.15? In Revelation 12.4, we are told this, And the dragon, that is Satan himself, stood before the woman who is Israel, who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. That frames, so Genesis 3.15, and that frames this ongoing conflict. Then we come back to Genesis 3, and God says to the serpent, you shall bruise his hill. God declared a temporary, minor blow, a hill wound. So God's telling Satan, there's coming a confrontation with this seed. You will only manage to wound him temporarily, but he will crush you ultimately which is, of course, the prediction of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, we don't have time to get into the crucifixion today. We've 
done that many, many times. But experts will say that crucifixion is the most agonizing, excruciating forms of punishment and pain a human being could ever suffer. In fact, the, the very word I just used, excruciating, is an English word that literally means from the cross. It's a word that we have developed to sum up something deeply agonizing. And so we are referring to the cross of Christ. It would be excruciating. That would be the bruised hill for Jesus, but it would only be the bruised hill. Why? Because it was temporary. Now you might say, well, dying on the cross sounds pretty fatal to me. Um, I mean, he died. Yes, but wait three days. And there is a resurrection. So we discover the death and the resurrection of Jesus would be the win in this battle. The bloodline leads to a bloody cross. But this bloody cross actually becomes a lifeline for us. There will be a confrontation. And then lastly, lastly, there will be a conquest. There will be a conquest. In Genesis 3.15, we read the words, He shall bruise your head. I love the opening scene of the movie, Passion of the Christ. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you would look it up, but not now, later. But it opens in a different garden, not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying to the Father, and he is filled with anguish and agony at the upcoming moment that he will bear our sin, our guilt, our shame, and he would take the cup filled with the wrath of God and he would drink it all. And unlike Adam and Eve who chose their own way in this garden, Jesus is saying, not my will, but yours be done. But in this agonizing scene in the movie, as Jesus is praying, Satan is tempting Jesus. And he continues to pray and he stands up. And then Jesus literally stomps his heel down and crushes the head of a serpent that's right there. It's an amazing, incredible scene. But what we know, according to 1 John 3, 8, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, crushing our guilt and our shame in the process. Praise be to him. Philip Brooks has a wonderful passage that shows how Jesus won the battle even while he was dying, and he writes this, he was wounded sorely, a life all torn and bleeding. He dragged out to the end. But when the end came, it was victorious. Look at him on the cross. Sin has taken the Savior and fastened him there. Sin has driven the nails, or in the nails, and crowded down the crown of thorns upon his forehead. It has seemed to have its own way with him. And all the while, with those hands closing in agony over the nails, he is crushing its life out. Sin is tormenting him, but he is vanquishing sin. That is what is happening, a conquest. But to say all that raises one question, and I get it. The question is, if Satan has been crushed, then why does he seem so, to, or seem to be doing so well 2,000 years later? Now, we know that Satan isn't, indeed, he's indeed alive. Now, he is not well, but he is alive. 
But because he's still alive, the world in which we live is not well. The world in which we live is, is not well. It's underneath his bondage. So how can a defeated being who was crushed by Christ exercise so much power? And the answer is, is that on the cross, Satan was judged and his sentence was pronounced. However, during this time, Satan is free to roam the earth awaiting final judgment. This also explains why Satan's destructive power on earth will grow even greater. As Revelation 12 says, he knows his time is short, but in the end, he will be destroyed forever. And here's the good news. Every trace of him will be erased. That is the beautiful picture of what we see here. One with a bruised hill will crush his head and will crush him again at his second coming. But don't miss the mercy, the grace, the love on display in this prophecy. Here is the first prophecy of Christ in Scripture, the first gospel promise in the Bible. Man who in this moment had become an enemy of God because of sin and a friend of Satan would, because of Christ, become a friend of God and an enemy of Satan. By the woman came sin, but by the woman would also come a savior. By the woman came the curse, but also by the woman would come one who removes the curse. The story has been told, and say this in closing, of a famous painting that hung in a European art gallery for many years. It depicted a chessboard with the devil sitting in the chair on one side, a look of gloating triumph all over his face. And across from him was a dejected youth with defeat written all over his face. The title of the painting told the story, Checkmated. Well, American chess champion Paul Murphy toured Europe and visited that gallery. He gazed at the painting in silent reflection for a long time. Then excitedly, excitedly he exclaimed, bring me a chessboard. There's one, mind you, only one, but there's one move whereby I can save him. And here's what we know, brothers and sisters, the world in which we live has been checkmated by the enemy. But the Redeemer came and made the one and only move, the one and only move that could be made to free us from the curse he made. He became a curse for us. Amen. He became our curse by which we can say where sin increased, his grace abounded all the more. I'm so thankful that before sin was ever in the heart of man, forgiveness was in the heart of God. We can have that forgiveness today. We can know that forgiveness as Christians as we walk this road. As our feet are dirtied with sin that we slip and fall into, we can have his forgiveness. Or if you're listening today and you've never trusted him as Savior, you can do that even now. Understanding that he is the only Savior of sinners in the world, but he will save you Let's pray together as musicians come forward. Father, we just thank you for this, your word, for this amazing prophecy, the beginning of the Old Testament, as sin enters. Yet there is this amazing promise, this amazing 
prophecy, God, of your grace, of your mercy, of, Lord, what you would do to save us from our sin. And, Lord, we thank you for saving us from sin. We thank you for forgiving us. We thank you that where sin increased, grace increased even more. For grace is willing to do what nothing else would lay itself down for us. Jesus, you became a curse for us to defeat the the curse upon us. Lord, I just thank you for that. I thank you, Father, for the the beauty of this prophecy. And I just pray that if anyone is listening that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, to cry out from the depths of their heart, asking you, O God, to forgive them of their sin. And that, Jesus, you would be the Lord and Savior of their life. Lord, I pray for others, for under the sound of my voice, God, that have been struggling and, and Lord, defeated by certain sins throughout this week. And Satan, again, as the accuser of the brethren, has accused and has accused and accused and beat down brothers and sisters in Christ that in this moment would be a moment of forgiveness. As we seek you, O oh God, the one who is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we confess our sin. To do that even in this moment. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you are still enough. You will forever be enough. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.